0: Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis. We are recording in New Orleans, Louisiana, site of the 2022 meeting of ASTER, the American Society for Theatre Research, also the site of this year's meeting of ASA, the American Studies Association, uh, which hopefully we'll get to, to talk about a little bit. Um, I am delighted to be recording in person uh, with my fellow regular co-hosts for ASTER 2022 Catastrophe. It's a little unusual for all five of us to be on the recording. Uh, so, for the icebreaker, here's what I want to do: I will introduce you each by name, and I will ask you each to say what is your preferred airplane beverage. For example, I, pretty much a diet coke guy, went on an airplane. However, I will sometimes order a ginger ale, and that and on an airplane is the only time I will ever order a ginger ale. To me a ginger ale is an airplane drink. I am joined by Jordan Ely of the University of Maryland. Hello, Jordan and uh airplane beverage.
1: Yes. Um hi, it's good to be here. It's good to be here with all of you. Um my airplane beverage is just a Coke. I'm just a good old Coke person. Not Coca Cola, that is. Okay. <laughs>
0: yes, yes, Coca Cola. It's a it's a classic. That's a great Great airline beverage. A very Atlanta we answer. <laughs> we are joined also by Miriam Felton Dansky of Bard College. Miriam, airplane beverage.
2: Um, I was brought up that tomato juice is what you drink on airplanes. Uh, I'd actually be curious about where that came from, but you have to eat peanuts with the tomato juice. So yes, peanuts and tomato juice.
0: Honestly, I. I feel like I have heard that before also, yeah. that tomato juice is something you should I, like to I not be I never drink dehyd-
2: tomato juice under other circumstances, so yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, this is already much more interesting than I, than I than I thought it might be. We are joined also by Brian Herrera of Princeton University. Brian, what are you ordering on the airplane?
3: I'm generally a Diet Coke obsessive in all contexts, but my beverage on an airplane is, this is the what I say. A can of club soda, please. Yes. A can of club club soda. And then they'll follow up. Sometimes, do you want a cup? Do you want ice? Do you want lime? And I just, but I always lead. I Give me the dang can.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, you're getting six ounces and maybe not exactly six. And so you want to say, give me the whole can. I think these are all great answers. Uh, Finally, we are joined by Leticia Ridley of Santa Clara University. Leticia, when you're on an airplane and they come by, what are you ordering to drink, if anything?
4: One, I hate flying, but... I always get the drink because I paid for it. Yes. So I'm getting me a nice cold Coca-Cola also can because I want the whole thing as well.
0: Nice. (laughs) Nice. We've got two cokes, two diet cokes, and a tomato juice.
3: Well, I'm a seltzer. I'm a, I'm actually a so, like a club soda. Uh, you know, it's, that's on an airplane. For some reason, I feel like I should hydrate. Okay, or, you yes. know, so I feel like club soda gives me carbonation, and I can pretend it's just water. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, you
2: actually should hydrate. So there is yeah. a reason. Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
3: that's my rationale. Like that's my sort of when I when I want a diet coke, I said no, you should hydrate. Get the club soda.
0: <laughs> Today on the podcast, we listened to NPR's recent series of reports on American regional theater called Next Stage. We'll discuss the snapshot it provides of the state of nonprofit theater in the United States. We also will talk about the Dramatists Legal Defense Fund toolkit for producing stage works on college campuses in turbulent times. This is a document that seeks to help college theater departments navigate potentially controversial productions. And finally, we will talk about Astro 2022 here in New Orleans. What have we seen, heard, experienced? Uh, how has this scholarly and creative meeting nourished our intellectual and creative lives. Before we dive into those topics, uh, we would like to do a land acknowledgement. Uh, this language is taken from the, the Astor program. The land currently known as New Orleans is physically situated in the region known as Bulbancha, a Choctaw term meaning place of many tongues. This place was originally inhabited by the Chitimacha Nation and prior to 1718 served as an important port and trading hub for more than 40 different peoples including the Choctaw, Chitimacha, Biloxi, Atacapa, Kado, Huma, Natchez and Tunica. For thousands of years, people lived along the Mississippi River and Bulbancha served as a place for diverse cultures to come together. So we acknowledge the city around us as home to numerous tribes before and after the arrival of Europeans. And as always, we encourage our listeners to learn more about the history of the land where they are. I would like to also take this opportunity to encourage listeners to check out our website, um, tappod.com where we have updated bio pages for our co-hosts, a new land acknowledgement page, and updates to our editorial policy on the About page. As always, you can reach out to us to suggest topics. Uh, We love to hear from our listeners. So with that, let's dive right in. over the past six weeks, seven weeks, uh, NPR has uh, aired a six-part series on American regional theater. It began September 21st. The last installment aired October 26th. Uh, as of our recording, you can still access this and listen to all of the um, uh, uh, pieces um, in whatever order or in whatever setting you like. Um, it provides a multi angle approach of reports on different facets of regional theater in the. US um, there's an interesting selection of different institutions that are profiled uh, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival Baltimore C- uh, Center stage Dallas Theatre Company Penumbra woolly Mammoth and Teatro Luna are also mentioned um, there's a lot in these uh, reports as a whole and I'll just say before um, opening things up to to my co-hosts that I feel as though there were three and maybe four sort of themes that were mentioned or emphasized across the different episodes, one being the pandemic and its effects on the theater producing business two working conditions um, three uh, what they call racial reckoning or um, uh, the the events of 2020 and the way those have ramified through the theater business um, uh, specifically the we see you white American theater letter um, and fourth though I don't know that this is really a theme so much as something that was mentioned a couple times competition with television that comes up in two different particular ways um, so it's it's a pretty impressive uh, work of journalism on American theater. I thought it was interesting that that was being aired on NPR. Um, but I guess what I'll ask uh, my four uh, fellow co-hosts is thinking back on those segments, which of the six um, sort of stuck with you the most, which of the six reports um, did you find yourself thinking about the next day or maybe wanting to listen to again?
3: Uh, my answer sort of comes in two parts. Cause I think on the one hand, the thing, um, I was most impressed about it is i don't think we've seen a lot of the, ad, the coverage in the in journalism that takes the approach that this series does which thinks of the theater not as a coastal thing but also thinks of it as an industry and think of thinks of it as sort of like the struggles of an industry like if we were to say like i could see the same series being about independent bookstores or something like this it sort of really thinks about it as and, and we just so much about theater is either celebrity driven or prize driven or or coastal driven. And so there was that. The other thing um, I will say, and I'm going to call this I'm going to talk about OSF and the Baltimore Center stage piece, because they both dealt with like the, the particular pressures of working context of what is what does it mean to accept suffering for the theater and stuffing any. Uh, abusive situation that might come along and not speaking out about it because in the baltimore C- center stage piece Which is mostly about baltimore center stage. So it talks about what mammoth, too, I think um, by Andrew Limbong, it talks about uh, Sort of shifting of hours of sort of adjusting rehearsal schedules of doing all these kind of things of making the theater uh, not so much of a sort of presumptive grind and sort of like You just do it until you break kind of business, which I thought was actually an interesting resonant with the most consequential piece, which was the opening piece about Oregon Shakespeare, which actually broke the news that artistic director Nataki Garrett was experiencing death threats. And that ended up having, continues to have consequential responses uh, two months later. And I don't know that we've, we can point to very many instances where, um, reporting on NPR about theater would still be being discussed in different segments for two months
0: yeah, yeah yeah the extent of it was interesting and so that Oregon Shakespeare Festival it sounds like that was the one yeah yeah I, I'm with you that one I actually listened to twice there was a lot in there um, what who who else yeah Leticia yeah
4: I just to jump off that I thought the episode that most interested me was the Nataki Garrett one but this also has residents across across all the episodes um, was this idea of these organizations and these regional theaters in crisis right mode and who do they turn to to save these organizations especially on top of you know the pandemic but also the sort of what they call the this racial reckoning right mm-hmm. um, women of color within the regional theater landscape has been turned to to sort of rehabilitate in this time of already so much turmoil right yeah. and um, for example, with Nataki Garrett, it is this push to sort of expand what we can think of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. But at that same time, right, there's this pushback. And even in the piece, um, I don't remember uh, the, the gentleman's name, but I believe he was a journalist who was who was talking about, like, you know, this healthy dialogue that we need to have. And I, I just want to make sure that we have found great things to, to, to build on and there's this great foundation. I don't want it to change. But the reality is, is it was failing, right? Like the organization was failing which required new methods modes and directions in for it to thrive so i think about you know um what roles are women of color within the theater industry the regional theater industry put in to sort of save this industry and perhaps you know five six years down the down the line what's going to happen if they are thriving right Do, are these women of color still going to be these faces of these institutions or will they be pushed out, or will there be another excuse Mm -hmm. um, of why, you know, they weren't a great fit for these places?
0: Yep, yep. Um, Your reaction is reminding me of something I believe Harvey Young brought up as a draft on the podcast years and years ago, which, and this was pre-pandemic, but noting the turnover of a lot of the heads of these important regional theaters and the elevation of a lot of people of color and women of color specifically, and his concern or his observation at that point was that A lot of these institutions are burning through money, not operating sustainably, and then they take then they have a person of color in the leadership. Are the donors going to show up? Is this going to be you know, are people going to help these leaders actually turn these organizations around? Um, And that was before the whole the pandemic made everything so much more difficult. Um, Miriam?
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, to to respond to that, I of course was also very struck by the first episode about OSF and Nataki Garrett, but that that was the one episode that also made me think seven minutes is not correct for this format. And I really, if listeners haven't read her own piece about this in the Root and other materials about um, what's been happening at OSF, I really hope that people will go out and read more because all of these questions about what she was you know handed in terms of the organization and the context in which she was working, this really requires Requires greater than um, a seven-minute, yeah. um, you know, kind of, and and also um, I I was somewhat disturbed by the um, by the even small amount of airtime that that let's have a healthy dialogue um, from that I guess white journalist. I'm so sorry. I also don't remember his name. Received as if that would be a healthy dialogue. I mean that 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 the framing of that by NPR was a little troubling to me. But I was really glad that it most likely brought attention to this. Um, for a you know a, a much wider audience. Um, I also was really struck by the Baltimore Center Stage and by the Penumbra um, episodes. And one of the things that I was thinking about as it was describing the way that um, Baltimore Center Stage has reshaped labor practices is just um, what is the work of describing what making theater requires in the first place? There's a section in that segment where they talk about the designers working with many materials to get um, a particular effect where uh, flower Mm -hmm. petals will fall to the floor, but the actors won't slip and it'll still be safe and it'll look the way they want. And um, of course, those of us in theater know that that is, of course, the hard work of doing theater design. But the idea that this is something that needs to be explained um, was very striking. Um, And then I thought, you know, just um, helping uh, someone to understand why it might actually be the correct decision to do four shows instead of six or to Mm -hmm. postpone an Opening night, I thought that was beautiful, and I thought the um, giving the history of Penumbra um, some space was also um, really effective.
0: Yep, yep, Jordan.
2: Yeah, um, I. In
1: addition to all of the thoughts shared here, um, the episode about playwrights and TV was really interesting to me because, actually, Terry Guest is um, a playwright I worked with as a dramaturg recently, and um, in addition to being such a fantastic playwright. I thought that his thoughts around the insustainability of playwriting as an art form were really really fascinating and um and speak to that thing that you were talking about earlier brian about theater the theater industry as an industry right is that playwriting yes it's creative it's artistic it's you know it's quote-unquote fun you know, pleasurable but it's a job and it's a job that people um cannot support themselves on and a lot of the you know tv industry is basically so you know um um, consuming playwrights and putting them in their their writers rooms and even before some have had a full production you know they're getting swooped into these tv rooms when they you know i haven't even gotten a chance to actually explore the theater industry um and so i thought that looking at that i think one of the quotes that i was interested in was like oh I'll never go back to theater it's like a a first wife that you um divorced in um what is it she was like yeah my first wife yeah i miss her but i'm not gonna get married to her again or something like that and it was like that's how she framed you know working in tv versus working in theater which i thought was horrifying but also (laughs) fascinating um and and yeah and, and that is something i i think about when i work with playwrights is like you know some of them are are their their plays are becoming more T V like. You know, their the 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 demand for playwrights is to be more cinematic, you know, whatever that may mean. Um and it it is it is because playwrights understand story and narrative and are imaginative in ways that are are pushing T V forward but um but we're not able to retain them because it's financially nearly impossible to do so. I don't think I know a single I don't know personally a single playwright that's able to make a living as a playwright only like they're usually supplementing it with other things such as screenwriting or tv writing so
3: or university john too yeah it's not yeah yeah, yeah. being
1: a professor yeah Yeah. yeah, absolutely
3: well how i don't know it's like maybe 15 years ago already that tony kushner wrote that op-ed saying i'm arguably one of the most produced one of the most most well-recognized playwrights and I cannot make a living as a playwright. And so this kind of question of, and, and I think one of the responses to that piece in particular, Jordan, that I found very striking was how folks said, we've seen this cycle of attention to the sort of the brain drain of, of especially playwriting talent, uh, going back to arguably the the start of the content proliferation era starting in the late 80s and the early 90s. And it is this question about, is the theater um, committed to sustaining its, pers- its, uh, its workers? Uh, on whatever front or is it about sustaining the foundation the grant the endowment the the sort of the Mm -hmm. not-for-profit structure Mm -hmm. which is i think one of the most important things that i have yet to see anybody really dig into or i'd love to hear how npr made a decision to go across local markets to Mm -hmm. build these stories right and why they said we're going to do this in september everybody find a theater story in your thing we're going to make it a series i'd be very interested because one of the things that strikes me is um npr is donor supported the regional theater is donor supported. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if there is kind of a philanthropic behind this saying that the philanthropic organizations are saying we need to make a better case for hmm. what we do as when we're asking for donor support. And so I'm just, I'm speculating here, but mm-hmm. I did th- stri- it struck me that this was actually a good demographic to target this content to oh, sure. because these are the folks who are, tend to be either art supporters and or potentially writing large or small checks to not-for-profit organizations like regional theaters. Yeah, I imagine the
0: Venn diagram of regional theater subscribers and NPR donors is a pretty, it's like a kind of like wobbly circle. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah I, th- I think... I think these are all, these are, these line up very much with my observations. I felt like the Oregon Shakespeare Festival story was the one that was so interesting. I listened to it twice. Daniel Pollock Pelsner shows up in there. So they did get a theater professor. I was glad to learn from that, that he had landed in a good new position at Portland State University after leaving his prior institution. Um, but yeah, they, they, there's so much content jammed into a seven or eight minute segment, you know, the, the history of Oregon's racial exclusion clause mm-hmm. the, the fact that the county in which Oregon Shakespeare festival exists is 80 percent white it's you know you listen to that a second time and you're like oh wow this is yeah this is actually like capturing big you know important dynamics that that transcend theater um also brian apropos of what you mentioned at the beginning i i i wasn't aware of those the stats that bob mondello cites at the beginning fourteen thousand productions per year Yearly attendance of 35 million, which is greater than twice the overall yearly attendance of NFL games. Um, and then later in the series, you learned that there's 1,800 theaters in this network.
3: So yeah I mean I think that that's, those numbers fluctuate like there were moments like there was a big crash in the early 90s where the number of member theaters declined almost by half because of the shifting foundation structures and mm-hmm. tax laws and those kind of things so but these are the ones who register as not for profit who also register in certain ways as being uh, having that kind of community orientation thing but I think you're right there is a way in which the the breadth and the depth and the ways in which everybody's local theater is actually part of a national Mm -hmm. industry is something that i think uh the it's worth us having more conversations about yeah Yeah.
0: this is actually a good time to segue into our next topic which is about college theater productions uh So we looked at um, a document that I think is fascinating. I'm very excited to talk about this: Um, the Dramatists Legal Defense Fund toolkit for producing stage works on college campuses in turbulent times. We'll put the link on our website so that listeners can find it. Um, But this document was published—I'm not sure when—recently, I think, uh, by the Dramatists Legal Defense Fund, which is an anti-censorship organization uh, created by the Dramatists Guild, um, with high-profile board members including the librettist John Weidman who's the the president of the board and playwright Lydia Diamond and and others. Um, And the organization is dedicated to helping theater artists fight censorship with legal representation. Part of why I think this is really interesting though is that because while, from what I gather about the DLDF typically, um, their activities have been, for example, um, helping artists uh, face, uh, confront efforts and fight efforts to ban shows that offend conservative sensibilities. For example, I think in at least at least two cases, they have found high school productions of rent that were canceled or under threat of being cancellation because school boards or communities didn't want to see the queer relationships represented. And the DLDF has... has you know, provided legal counsel and advocacy um, to help protect that uh, free expression. While that's what the DLDF has done historically, this document addresses the challenges of college productions, which are apt to be canceled because of subject matter that makes students uncomfortable. Um, And so it is addressed toward, and I'm quoting from the document, potential conflicts between safe spaces in creative uh, uh, and creative slash academic freedom. Um, So I thought, I, I don't know about you all, when I started reading this at first, I was like, oh boy, here, like, is this, is this document, because it is engaging in free speech rhetoric, which unfortunately in 2022 is increasingly um, invoked by uh, right-wing political forces to protect um, all sorts of, I would say, toxic and antisocial um, ideas and and, and positions. Um, is this document now sort of taking a move like, I don't know, like the Harper's letter, um, mm-hmm. where yeah. the, the concern from what has, traditionally been a sort of left or progressive uh, institution or agent um, against right wing or sort of, you know, perhaps religious censorship is now directed towards um, a left that is portrayed as intolerant, et cetera, um, which I think is a topic that there's there's plenty of interesting conversation and debate to have on it. Um, but because this document at the beginning begins to frame everything as a legal issue, like what is free speech, what type of free speech is 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 protected by the Constitution, what type is not, et cetera, et cetera, um, I I was I, I, I don't know I felt a little bit of discomfort, or I wasn't sure where what what was really the 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 object of this. I don't know about you all, but by the time I finished the document, I felt like this is something that everyone in a college theater department should have and read because it ends up giving many concrete suggestions at every phase of a production to try to account for potential controversy, to help students have buy-in in in key processes in production, play selection, casting, um, being prepared to just, you know, to address um, uh, student discomfort, student protests, et cetera. Um, Ultimately it does take the view that the show should not be canceled, that if a show is canceled because students have protested, that that is an unacceptable or an undesirable compromising of of free speech and creative expression. Um, But speaking as someone who, when he was chairing a theater department, really needed to look at the production process and figure out why students were not happy about things that were going on and um, wanting to, you know, keep artistic creation going uh, and also accommodate and 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 give and honor uh students concerns of various types i ended up thinking these suggestions are good um so i'm very curious to know what your all of your takeaways were as well
2: um well if i can just uh, add on to that is also somebody who is currently um chairing a theater program and um i have spent the past Two or three years um, since I've been in that role, um, really with my colleagues rethinking what production means at all um, on a college campus. I I also started this um, piece thinking that it was going to be conservative in that or con- conservative and perhaps defensive in that way that it that it started out um, almost as a guidebook to how to not have controversies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was I you know was curious to think about what what even do we mean by controversy um, and. And I know that this is really a practical guide, so it's not offering a kind of like expansive view about what what a controversy even is. Um, but something that I've been thinking about a lot with my colleagues is, um, what what do we mean by a problem? Can we think actually differently about what constitutes the nature of a problem? Um, and uh, and yeah, I think that many of the things that that came through by the end were um, things that my colleagues and myself have been working to do, or um, or resonate a lot with um, with things that that we do. And I and I think that um, a lot of these are really, there was a real sense of recognition about this offering a kind of set of guideposts, perhaps for someone who might be unprepared for um, what it means to really do anything challenging, anything that is confronting of difference um, or engaging with difference in any way. um, and, uh, And what the nature of Um, safety really is, especially, and I can only speak from the position of a um, white program chair in a predominantly white institution, when it's mostly white students who are asking for safety, what that that actually means and what it puts on the table and takes off the table. So all of those are, you know, just a few things that came up as I was reading this. For me, you know, I am early career,
4: has chaired nothing but my <laughs> dissertation recently. Um, but not even that, not even that. um, I've been thinking a lot because both in my graduate program at University of Maryland College Park, one of the things that we really heard from uh, the undergraduate students, specifically Black undergrad students, was we don't want any more plays about Black trauma. Mm-hmm. And from my understanding, at least in conversation with my my other colleagues, they're hearing something similar mm-hmm. from specifically from uh, Black students, and in trying to sort of parse out what that means, right? What what is trauma? What is joy? How do we you know, decide which is which in a play. You know, oftentimes I feel like both exist simultaneously in a lot of works. Um, And then coming to Santa Clara, which uh, is a predominantly white institution, um, when I came in, the students were really you know, asking the department, what are your processes? We wanna be a part of it. We want transparency, right? Um, They were really interested in thinking about gender more fluidly within Mm -hmm. casting. Um, So when I approached this document, the first thing I thought was like, well, this is instructive as a starting place. Mm -hmm. Um, I kind of cringed with some of the language of like safe space, like what does it mean to have a safe space? Some folks like to use brave space. this idea of resolving conflict instead of maybe perhaps sitting in conflict um was something that I was thinking about but all in all I do think it's a great starting place um I I I do think it should be required reading um in all theater departments and I do I do appreciate that they they note that this does not this is not a one size fit all. Um, and I think that's important to note and to think about it. And I love that they do break it down. Like I feel like it's a really approachable document. Um, and I think these are conversations that we've been having quite a lot um, within our within our field. And, and what does it mean to produce theater at a college campus? What's the goal of it? Um, how do we make sure that we are using, you know, Theater's ability to present new ideas and to think deeply about things and to pursue social change, um, but I I would like to see and perhaps again, like I said, this is a starting place. How do we account for like the nuances? Of um, a theater production, uh, the processes of, of theater production from casting, from selection to performance. I really actually thought it was really intriguing that they named a dramaturg like in the performance section. That dramaturgy came up as like a vital component of it. Um, and I, as someone who's a dramaturg, as well as I know Jordan's also a dramaturg. Um, I was excited about that because I think sometimes a dramaturg kind of gets siloed in the theatrical process and you know how a dramaturg can facilitate some of these conversations that we're having.
1: Yeah, um, I think for me, I, I agree that it's a very approachable document. I, I appreciate the practicality of the document, you know, here are the questions. Here are the steps you should follow. What is the plan for first day rehearsal? What, how do you address issues when they come up? Um, But something I actually found compelling was it was almost an indictment in many ways about the ways that departments may not have attended to these. Mm -hmm. So like, for example, it's like, if issues of racism or, you know, other forms of bigotry come up, does your department already have a process in place for that? Mm -hmm. And I think a question like that Mm -hmm. is like both, of course, addressing the problem in the rehearsal room, but it's like, But it actually goes deeper into a department because, you know, I'm at University of Maryland and, um, you know, we bring in guest artists, right, to do directing. So, like, there are people who are not affiliated necessarily with the department or who are not necessarily operating with this, I don't know for sure, but, like, may or may not be operating under the same um, agreements that the department have set forth but like when when it's being directed by a faculty member for example um who is there like how do they bring the ethics of any given department into the rehearsal room and so for me it just reinforced that these processes are all connected with one another um i find just larger issue a larger issue that sometimes i see is within theater departments there's a divide between You're a scholar and you're a practitioner. You know, there's history and theory, and then there's the performance areas. And I think something like this document teaches me that this also goes into the classroom, and this also goes into collapsing that divide. So, who are the professors are who are also going to be teaching you about dealing with bigotry? Can is there there's there can't be a one size fits all model, as Latisia was saying. Who It's all going to be addressed in acting or it's all going to be addressed in, you know, script analysis. Like it has to be this kind of collaborative effort that's happening across the department. And that's not just in um, rehearsals. It's in the department meetings. It's in the classrooms and the season planning. Um, And like Leticia, I've not chaired anything yet except the chair I'm sitting in. But I have I have gotten to serve on, like, the season planning committee, for example, at the University of Maryland. And I think serving on that taught me a lot about something like these processes because we would ask these questions. Okay, you want to do this play, but do we have the support to do that play? So I think, yes, this is a really great jumping off point, but I think it just reveals that there's a structural um issue that needs to be addressed probably across theater departments.
3: Yeah. I would agree that I think I think with everybody that this is I think a uh, really m- great um, resource to not have to sort of <laughs> to be able to bring it in and start the conversation rather than having to find a way to start the conversation wherever you are. I, I My biggest frustration with it, as I read it a few times, was I wish there had been more, I wish it had been a partnered release, like that the DLDF had partnered with a committee with Atha or something like this, so they could have actually had a slightly more informed, because I do know that the Dramatist Guild is the only entity outside of college campuses that when these things go up, the playwrights turn to the Dramatist Guild. And so the Dramatist Guild has found itself in the crosshairs of a lot of excited requests Mm -hmm. from playwrights' departments and from universities. And I can see why they needed to say, like, we can't field each of these individually. We just got to hand something back over. And so I think that was great. I do think there were certain sections that might have been fortified with something, some folks that might have been able to think more comprehensively about different production models on campus. For example, some of the more recent uh, headline-grabbing examples of shows being canceled because of students' refusal to say words that are scripted in a historical text, for example, have often emerged in student groups on campus. Hmm. and student production groups who work independently of a department or structure and those and so what I was grateful for this is like oh I now have this thing that I can handle to the dean who is the person who has actually in the front lines because we actually don't get involved in student group productions yeah. and yet off, and often those are the ones where students don't really know what they're getting into and suddenly production's happening and things start exploding and the dean is suddenly like what do I do and the dean is also in the position of being the person who signed the rights so has on the legal hook. So there's certain elements of this that I think is a a multifaceted resource and is something I'm definitely, in some of my classes, going to use as a starting exercise for a lot of conversations.
0: That's a really interesting point. And uh, one of the things that the questions that I had that it reminded me of is uh, questions I had for this document, which was, um, I would have loved to see their research. They said they did, you know, they spent two years looking at case studies. I, I, I understand why they wouldn't necessarily share that information. I bet a lot of it is, you know, confidential or sensitive to the institutions where these um, events have happened. But sort of an overarching question I've had about this f- broad phenomenon, the, you know faculty and administrator concerns about students who are uncomfortable, feel unsafe or apt to protest or apt to, you know, want changes or want production shut down. What I don't know is to what extent it's really a big, broad phenomenon that really happens and really needs, um, a concerted institutional response or to what extent it is largely sort of in the heads of faculty who are worried about being criticized or, you know, planning to direct a play and now thinking, oh, no, you know, sort of imagining a person in their, a student in their head who is mad with them and then getting in an argument with them. Um, so I guess I'm, I'm, they they cite several examples that make it seem like it's a, it's a genuine and substantial phenomenon, but uh, I'm I'm not so sure.
3: The other thing is, is I think what is really striking, and this connects back to the NPR Mm -hmm. stuff, is I think what it does go to show is the rigidity of theatrical production models on campus, where they're so slotted in, in terms Mm -hmm. of labor and time, that anything that requires a pivot Mm -hmm. is a crisis. (laughs) And so it may be a crisis that is easily resolved, but if it goes off production template, it is, it's suddenly, it's like, We've had a couple, uh, you know, sorry, I am uh, interim director of the program and theater at Princeton right now, so so, so I think, so you're outnumbered, Leticia and Jordan, uh, but I'm not going to be come January, so it's, it's, a, it's a limited time, but it is this thing where we've had a, a couple productions where when things come up and it is this sort of moment of we have to figure out how to um, manage it you know and there's no template no training and indeed no overarching framework within to understand like what's going on here oh this is over here which is i think what the document helps us do yeah is if we run against a crisis in a department and run it against the format that the document outlays it doesn't diagnose it but it is a first term in conceptualizing what is the strategy, if yeah. not for this production next year or subsequent approaches? So I do think it does describe the fact that a theater programs, even more than, certainly more than the professional theater and even more than the regional theater is still very entrenched in the show must go on. And that is, I think, where this could be a tool for not only making sure we have the resources or have the mechanism, mechanisms in place, but how to understand how we can slow down. Like, do we delay an opening night like regional theaters are doing? Do we sort of say we're not gonna do as many rehearsals? Like, this is what I think all of us are doing individually, but we have yet to have a sort of a, a touchstone reference to sort of say, okay and this is part of a national conversation as opposed to our campus does it this way so there's a kind of isolation but also a dedication to a model of production which really only lives in the in educational theater
1: yeah and even i think too is like university theater is such a great place to rethink these models because we are not adhering to a financial structure in the same way that a regional theater is right so it's like we're not dependent upon ticket sales or you know reviews of the show. Some departments are, but some yeah. some yes, right. I mean, you know, like University of Maryland, big yeah. schools like that, right, where it's, you know, it's not as, um, dependent upon these economic boundaries mm-hmm. that are are like limiting the department, and so you know. Why not be, uh, instead of, I think the other way around where it's like, we we are just practicing what you would do in the professional theater world. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, actually, why not be the model for the professional theater world to follow, right? Mm -hmm. Because everyone starts in university anyway, right? Before they go into the professional
3: world. Yeah. But I do think that this is an opportunity in this document, I think, as a as a conversation point for a faculty meeting, as a research to hand resource to hand a dean who suddenly said there's like what's going on, because of course when, when a student group gets in trouble, that can impact licensing options for the university as a whole. You know, hmm. So there's ways in which ways in which um, this is a resource I think for our colleagues to have access to to be a conversation starter in a variety of things, whether it's the classroom, whether it's with the administration, whether it's internal to the department Mm -hmm. um, and possibly to see like, what is our departmental addenda to this? What is the way we would adapt this format to our needs? It's a resource that I wish they'd consulted uh, our industry more, but I think it's also a very valuable resource. It's available free. You sign up, uh, you send your email, they'll send you a PDF. It's easily shared after that. But I would say, I would recommend that folks actually have everybody in your department go sign up for it and get the, free to PDF, because that'll tell the Dramatist Guild, the Dramatist, the Dramatist Legal Defense Fund, that this is a valuable resource, and it might lead to further partnership. Yeah,
0: and there's much more that goes into these cluster of issues. We, um, My department uh, had art equity in several years ago um, to help guide us through some some issues. Uh, students were, were not happy with the department, and, and we did sessions with them. One of the things that we took away from that was that um there are you know uh, things that cause student discomfort which students can get past if there is trust built up between faculty and students and you can do that partly by doing some of the things that they recommend having transparency in the process having openness and student input in the process but one of the big things is having colleagues of color if you have a all-white faculty on your department and you are asking students whatever their background to represent racism, sexism represent difficult material, uh, having a you know, diverse faculty can help. Although I will say on the other hand, you cannot assume that having faculty of color on a production on a project gives you cover to yeah. do whatever, or that it's the responsibility of that faculty member to make sure everything's kosher, um, because that is a trap that uh, professional theaters have fallen into as well as, mm-hmm. as, well as educational theaters.
4: Yeah. And I'll just add as my sort of final note on this is that my department, we've been thinking about like, what does it mean to like actually have a class that serves as the rehearsal? Mm -hmm. So it's dedicated time for students and to actually think about the working conditions Mm -hmm. for students, because students are also a very particular they're yeah. in a very particular context, right? Like they have multiple classes that may not be their major. They might also have other, like they're just doing so much, especially now. Yeah. Students are, the they're taking way more classes than even when I was an undergrad. Yeah. And how do we adapt to their needs, their desires, and what can we re-envision? And I'm, and I'm gonna be quite honest, there's pushback on that, especially when you have you know, certain faculty members who also work in the industry, and it was like, well, this is what the industry does, so therefore we have to do what the industry does. Um, and like, how do we navigate that? And um, how do we maybe push those folks to consider, well, maybe we can just do something different and we end up somewhere else? Um, to your point, Jordan, about like, you know, maybe it should be flipped. Maybe the industry or, you know, regional theater should be following what's happening at college campuses. Um, so I think like reimagining and really thinking about um how do we re- remake this thing we call the theater industry both at the regional level and at the college uh, level as well
0: yeah so lots to lots to think about um i really do recommend the this this document to our listeners um and so we wanted to talk about uh aster 2022 itself the conference is ongoing as we record there's still um sessions to be had conference chairs uh jennifer Kokai, sam o'connell tom robson have done a great job the organization has done a great job from what everything i've seen and heard um putting together another quite successful conference um I thought I would ask each of you, um, um, and oh, as an aside, uh, Miriam Felton-Dansky had to leave, catch her uh, ride to the airport, so she is not here with us on this segment. Um, thank you very much, Miriam. But I thought I'd eat, uh, ask each of the remaining co-hosts, was there something that you witnessed? Uh, a talk, a paper in a working session, a, a piece of art, something that was memorable, excellent, thought-provoking? What, did, what have you experienced so far?
4: I'll jump in. Um, I'll say that I'm gonna do a shameless plug. So I was con- co-convening with uh, Donatella Galela and Lindsey Livingston um, call a working group called Decarcerating the University. And our working group was great, wonderful, everything, it was magical. Um, we're gonna produce a zine, but one of the things that we actually were really conscious about was taking the working group outside of the working group context. So actually this morning we tabled um, at the conference around abolition um, and it was called coffee not cops mm-hmm. um and we were really trying to one gather interest from the membership of, of astr to sort of think about collectively how we can address uh cops on our campus um in our classroom the cops in our head and our hearts um and we really reimagine what like abolition from a theater and performance perspective offers us um like I said, we'll we will be producing a zine, but I was really energized by at least the membership's interest in engaging in these conversations, mm-hmm. um, being willing to sort of re- rethink, uh, you know, some of our carceral logics that we hold so dear, and that has just the repetition of that. Um, and then lastly, uh, not my own working group. I was really intrigued by Esther Kim Lee's uh, paper talking about how to make theater history cool again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say that I was someone, when he, when I came into grad school, I was like, theater history? Ugh, Shakespeare? Ugh. But uh, as someone who had the opportunity to learn from uh, Dr. Esther Kim Lee I actually think theater history is quite cool and I and and even, you know, working very closely with Jordan and, and seeing Jordan's work, I think there's so much untapped exploration of theater history in so many directions that we can go. And sometimes I think it does get sort of the bastard of our field of like, well, we've been there, done that, let's go elsewhere. Um, so I was really intrigued by her sort of call to sort of think about decolonizing theater history, about mm-hmm. thinking about um, what theater history offers us, and even some of the, the, the sort of connections and breaking down that binary of theater history and performance studies that, you know, we have been debating at nauseum for a very long time.
0: Great. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, due to circumstances beyond my control, I was not able to take in the whole conference and missed that plenary. I only have been here since, uh, yesterday afternoon. Um, and I guess the highlight, uh, from what I saw was, uh, Raisa Williams, uh, plenary paper this morning. Um, I believe the title is three black mothers in a Cleveland cabaret as the city burns down Uh Raisa is now your colleague, Brian at Princeton. She was formerly my colleague at WashU. and I'm not mad it's fine um i get it none of us in this room totally believe that but (laughs) 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 it's cool um but races work uh always and this was another example it's it's theoretically very sophisticated it's auto-ethnographic it's very grounded it's personal but it's it she's able to tell the stories that Come out of her scholarly mind in a way that is so gripping and so original and so exciting, and so that was a that was a great paper. bit of a rocky Q and A. We don't have to get into it, um, but uh, but I thought she gave a great paper in that in that session.
3: Yeah, she even—the um, papers was a star, and then the way she she handled in tandem with her fellow panelists and the, the moderator, what was sort of a glitchy Q&A, uh, they all just emerged as stars for their grace and clarity with which they engaged what was a fairly conventional, like almost predictable, almost—we uh, could see cartoons being written about the cliches <laughs> of it. But um, I will say that the thing is, is as I— um, a quick shout-out is, loved Dr. Esther Kim Lee's talk, but I really have been stuck with... Um uh, a scholar, Jordan Ely. Have we? As have we heard, uh, I, I, I heard. A, I heard a good plenary I, given. I, yeah, I understand yeah. that they are um, a, a PhD, a, a PhD candidate at University of Maryland, College Park. Um, the chair also underscored a lot of other things about. The chair of the panel underscored a lot of other things about their professional status. But they were the first speaker of the, uh, you know, of the uh, of the conference. And I thought really, um, and I'm now I'm now looking at my colleague on this, my fellow co-host, as I'm teasing her. Um, <laughs> But I thought that one of the things that was really that has really stuck with me was the intervention that Jordan's um, provocation offered us to say not just ask why we're speaking, not just not mm-hmm. just that, but to really listen to how do we and not just sort of default to a politics of citationality of making sure that there's a black woman in our syllabus or a or a black woman cited in our things, but to really understand. I've been asking as we select topics like why is oh why am I the person who should walk into this conversation to guide it. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that elegant you know channeling uh, channeling Zora and doing but sort of really opening up this question uh, as an ethical imperative but also as a, a thought opportunity to sort of do that, and that is something as I went and chaired a panel at ASA, as I was doing all these things, I kept thinking like, what would Jordan say about that? And so that for me is the, what I come to the conferences for, is to is to have that. Um, so I'm gonna double dip, because Miriam's not here, so I will, um, I'm, I, I'm gonna double dip, because the thing I have also been thinking about is, my plenary is in an hour, uh, and I'm aware that nearly everybody in the conference is leaving. <laughs> And That's I'm not, not taking it personally. I don't think it's really about me. But I am aware of that as a fellow with my with, uh, panel and Charlotte Canning and Coriatha Mitchell. We planned the last Aster of the before times. We, Clo we <laughs> planned the last Aster that was really adhering to the template of Asters of the previous decade or so. 2019. Yeah. So, um, and so I've been thinking about that and I was looking at how this how under new president Jimmy Noriega and how the conference co-planners, what they did was they did something very strategic, which is they um, front-loaded a lot of working groups to Thursday. Hmm. And they also diminished the number of plenaries but put them a little bit later in the conference while also front-loading the brunch and award ceremony, so it was on Friday. So there's a way in which, in order to sort of get folks to stick to come earlier and be more engaged and not dip in at the peak moment of Saturday, mm-hmm. Friday, Saturday, they did. And what we're now seeing is it's going to be a little bit of a ghost town tomorrow. And the popular, you know, so are people really? I mean, I know that a few people are leaving. I'm, I'm uh, big, yeah, a right. lot of people, a lot are, people are leaving. <laughs> a lot, like okay, lot of, like okay. One of I, one uh, other point of awareness that I think is worth noting is Jimmy Noriega's one of his presidential initiatives. Is, is to sort of enhance undergraduate participation options, which has meant the first undergraduate-led working group. But one of my students is part of that working group, and she booked her ticket to return on Saturday, and her roommate who booked the room was leaving today. And so she was suddenly having to find another room. So there's this kind okay. of thing where a lot of folks are leaving on Saturday. Interesting. And so um, so if they came on Thursday, like it's the question of a four-day. But it's one of those things that I think just tracking back everything we've been talking about how when we make structural changes we also have to be prepared to assess understand and mm-hmm. strategize the unintended consequences mm-hmm. of those structural changes mm-hmm. when we uh, make an adjustment for a certain set of priorities it will reveal some things that we hadn't necessarily anticipated mm-hmm. and how are we you know um, going to do with that and so as Laura McDonald the vice president for conferences said at the, at, at the business meeting yesterday she said what we did this year may not be what we do next year so it does seem like the organization is moving into a slightly more experimental mode which is different than what panel i came into which was very much you have to do with the way we've always done it uh it was it like sort of saying like what are the ways we can make slight adjustments still within our limitations yeah. they're also convening a conversation about alternate models not relying on hotel structures and those kind of things so i think it's going to be an interesting way in which where everybody on all fronts is interrogating received and inherited structures And, but it's also growing pains and creakinesses are inevitable in that. And so we also have to figure out how to hold with grace or how to hold with criticism, those things as they become revealed. So that's what I've been thinking a lot about.
1: Yeah. Um, one, thank you, Brian, for the shout out. Um, (laughs) that was, um, it was such an honor to be a part of that panel and, and for people making that space, um, for a graduate student, you know, to reflect on the state of the profession. I mean, it's just, it's fantastic. Um, but I also had the opportunity to be a part of a working group on black women and catastrophe and um, amazing conversations, papers, um, but a wide range of, of genres and and formats. I mean, um, Dr. Nicole Hodges persley she, Um, is working on a musical that she shared with us (laughs) in that working group and um, um, we have topics from you know Jesse Fawcett's editor as an editor at The Crisis to um, Octavia Butler's Kindred to um, you know thinking about things like Gem of the Ocean and Aunt Hester and how she is both a seafarer and a healer you know like I just I thought that working group was so generative for me and um, I was really stunned to be a part of a group that really um, centered black feminist knowledge production in a very intentional way and you know we're so siloed as black feminist scholars you know it's like someone's over here and someone's over there but for us to be able to come together and you know I was able to meet some new colleagues and just you know have that connection and very um centralized space for thinking about black women's um knowledge within the space of performance studies in so many different ways was just truly i can't even i can't even put it into words it was just like i never had that experience before at astor and i think new paradigms um are they open up those possibilities, right? Like, mm-hmm. if you have these conference conveners who are the ones who said yes to that group, which then made space for us to all come together, and now we all know that we're not alone in our little corners of the world, you know, it's, it's that kind of, of um, I don't know, forward thinking, future thinking, intentional, careful planning um, that leads to the biggest change, I think, in our fields. I'm reminded of um, last year when Harvey Young was awarded the Distinguished Scholars Award. And the most one of the most profound things he said, of many, that he, that he always says, is when he said, um, I am here because a lot of people said yes. Mm-hmm. And we're all here because a lot of people yeah. said yes. And then I also really was struck by um, Daphne Leigh's um, speech in her acceptance of the Distinguished Scholars Award, you know, reflecting on being this young graduate student who is not American, who's coming into this space and trying to find, you know, where she fits in and being able and, and seeing like, okay, one after pass and then five and then 10 and, you know, not much has changed or, and and then seeing where she is now and being able to reflect on her impact, her incredible impact on the field. Um, I don't know, it's just that kind of celebration of um, of her work that was really inspiring to me. Um, but also in a way it made me reflect and it's like, dang, uh, you know, these women of color that I admire so much have had to just fight to be here and fight to be in these spaces. And so it gives me hope so I'm thankful that they've made that space for me, but also it did make me reflect a little bit.
4: And people don't wear tweed jackets that much anymore. I've also learned that.
0: We can bring it back, though. <laughs> we can get we can get the tweed.
3: If anybody can, Letitia can. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's right, absolutely. I'm trying
4: to be the style icon of ASTR. I mean, uh, you know, I can't cool. compete in ASA because it's a fashion show over there, but ASTR, I feel yeah. like
3: I can ASA, the bar is high, I hear. I've never, like be, never been. tweed
1: on you is cool. Like, tweed on... <laughs> Like cool new professor that's
3: cool. I think we could all work tweed in and, and an ensemble. It would be and like it would it be a fascinating have. thing. It would be a fascinating thing if all of us, if all of all the co-hosts were we maybe if we ever do another one of these reconvenings, we do a shot and we figure out what the what the sartorial consistency yeah. is for all of I us. I think we, we need to
0: be coordinating our outfits for future uh, in-person recordings and the first one should be tweed. Tweed and Hope yeah, 2023. Yeah, 2023. Tweed, and hope. <laughs> tweed and Hope. Tweed and Hope. Uh uh hope. let's yeah. let's uh, let's wrap this up with our drafts um listeners know listeners certainly know that uh our drafts are our works in process our incomplete thoughts our musings what's bouncing around in our head um uh leticia what what is your draft for
4: the episode i'm so excited to share my draft because you know, if you don't know me, I kind of have, I obsess over things. I get really interested in things and I just obsess over them. And I spend hours on it. Recently it was Big Brother, but that's not my draft, listeners. My draft is something called role-playing in video games. So Grand Theft Auto is this huge game. And what a group of computer engineers, scientists, clearly I'm a theater scholar and not in any of those fields, yeah. created a server in which folks can create their own town using sort of the base game of Grand Theft Auto um, and by that I mean like they want a wing stop in their virtual world, they right. can put a wing stop in there. Um, and I discovered this world created by Black Fems um, called Venus City role playing, and it's serious role playing where people take on a their their avatar, their character. They take on a role, and in this world, they have to live. Um, and what's really interesting about it is that in this virtual world where they can imagine any possibilities, mm-hmm. they often uh, continue to reinscribe the very scripts of their of their life. Right. So, like, there's a police force. Um, the police act very similarly to, you know, our day-to-day. Simultaneously, right, you have all this expression of queer desire from folks who may not feel comfortable in their so, you know, quote-unquote real life to express it. So I'm just really interested in the space of role-playing for both imagining different sort of possibilities as a space of exploration, but also why folks tend to sort of lean back on those very models and structures in which we already currently live within.
0: Is this a product that uh, whatever company makes Grand Theft Auto has created and is selling, or that people have sort of hijacked and made their own? People have
4: hijacked and made it. Wow. Um, Yeah. So, like, people can create their own individual world. So there's actually many, many worlds. Do you
0: access them through, like, a playstation or xbox or a you pc you only you
4: only could play you can play Grand Theft Auto on many um platforms but the only way that you can play like these very specific role-playing games is you have to have a computer okay and you actually have to have this server like a gaming called pc yeah. yeah okay 5m which allows that role-playing world to exist for you
3: it's fascinating that's fantastic um, uh, brian yikes okay um, so i've i've been sort of draftless for a while but i think what i'm gonna go with is um, Letitia distracted me because she mentioned Big Brother, and so I'm like, I, I'm I'm like I'm finally watching the new series series of The Mole, and so I'm like really excited about that, and I'm not quite done, and that's what just that's been sustaining me. But uh, but the thing I think I will say is I just came off of a three year term of service reading for the Hewitt Award, um, which means that. I've had the the real blessing and burden of doing a sort of three graduate seminars in a, in a space of four months, reading uh, dozens of academic books. But it's been a, such a gift to read beyond my discipline and read beyond my field. And what I'm aware of now as I'm cycling out of, and this year, this year in particular was just a stunner of a year. So uh, plug, if you haven't seen the list of ten finalists for this year's Hewitt, Hewitt Award, just um, close your eyes and point, read it, you won't be disappointed. They're an amazing list. Um, but for the first year, I know that I, when I see a new book, it's not gonna be coming at me. And so I'm like, uh, and so I'm very excited to uh, read, uh, her name's come up a few times, Esther Kim Lee's new book, Made Up Asians, Yellow Face in mm-hmm. the Exclusion Era. It just seems like it's such an exciting topic. It's right in my sweet spot in terms of historical period. And uh, nobody does it like Esther Kim Lee. So I'm just very uh, excited to get that book and haven't bought it yet, but but it, you know, but it was also like, why am I not buying it? Oh, I said, oh, I was assuming I'd be getting it too. Uh, okay, no more. I now have to buy them again, which is great. So, um, yay for the Hewitt finalist list, and yay for Esther Kimley's new book.
1: Yes. Um, so, in the spirit also of celebrating scholarship, um, one, I, I kind of have a two-ish, more of a question, more. Of a, I'm just um, but no, I do have two-ish drafts, but. One is, I, I cited this in my talk on citation, but Feels Right by Kimi Adeyemi, which was just recently released, I believe in September 2022, like literally fresh hot off the presses, Duke University Press. Um, that book is such a critical and crucial intervention into ethnographic practice, um, Black queer studies, uh, queer nightlife but from the perspective of black queer women, which is not often explored even within that nightlife space. And so um, that book is just fantastic. And I just wanted to shout that out because I think that Kimi Adeyemi is doing some really critical work in our field that um, I hope will, will continue to be recognized and celebrated and engaged within our classrooms. Um, and I also wanted to highlight, so, Another conference that's going on at the same time here is American Studies Association Conference. Um, and I've gotten to kind of sneak away and do both, right? <laughs> um, like Brian and, and Leticia too. Um, but uh, Shanna Redman, who is the uh, president of the American Studies Association, who is a wonderful musicologist, um, black cultural critic, uh, black feminist scholar, and, um also, like labor organizer, community organizer. she gave her presidential address last night called "The Dark Prelude." And I wish that everyone in performance studies was there to see the talk. Um, she focused on the uh, Asada Shakur's uh, encounter with the police in May nineteen seventy three. It was performative it was archival it was historical it was sonic i mean she had a dj that played tracks every so often and so yeah i i just that and it's going to be published i believe in american quarterly next year um but i don't think it's going to be able to capture like the ephemerality of the that performative moment i mean at the end of the piece she just walked off the stage abolition now was projected on the screen and she goes and picks up her child and dances mm. with him and that was how it ended and it was just it was poignant it was beautiful but it was also just so critical um so anyways when that piece comes out i hope all will engage it and and read it and teach it in your classes but also like it it cannot compare to what happened, the actual performance of it. So what a wonderful way to (laughs) engage that, that work.
0: Fantastic. Um, for my draft, I, uh, so, um, Ero Lane and Shane Boyle are getting people together to work on a project on commercial performance. And I got their email and said, yes, cause I, I know them and I like them and I'd like to work with them, but I've never done any, work on commercial performance. I have questions about what commercial performance is, but quite coincidentally, um, I went to Disney World last weekend and saw a ton of it. Um, And I'd never been and... It, you know, I'd heard about it my whole life and, and knew that there was going to be a lot of sort of theater and performance, et, et, et cetera. Um, but it was it was wild. It was kind of it was kind of mind blowing. Um, and so it's gotten me thinking, uh, you know, where is the scholarship? Uh, that I should be reading and citing if I want to write about um, Disney World. Do you have a tip for me?
3: I do, and it's in tribute to our conference c- conference co-chairs, Jenny Kokai and Tom Robeson. Have yeah. a edited anthology about Disney performance that came out from Palgrave about two years ago. And wow! So, great. so they are the they are the first stops. Great. Both of them as a, as a collaborative team, but also individually, they will be some of your first stops because their work on commercial performance broadly. Is, is indispensable.
0: That's phenomenal,
3: I, I'm so glad to know that. One um,
1: of from University of Maryland who graduated from there, she's in that collection and writes about Disney theme parks specifically and, okay. and villains um, and how they show up in that. And then also in musical theater, um, Amy Osatinsky mm-hmm. is a Disney scholar. Um, her book is fantastic, I cannot remember the name right now, but definitely like one of the preeminent Disney people in in musical theater studies.
0: Thank you both so much for giving me bibliography. But I realize I may be out of my depth and not have a <laughs> lot to, to a lot to contribute that hasn't been thought already. But I will I um, will I will grab those readings and and check them out immediately. Thank you, um, listeners. Thank you for downloading and streaming. Um, we've got some exciting uh, things coming up in in the next few episodes, and I hope you'll keep uh, keep us on your on your subscribe lists. Um, send us your suggestions for topics, and um, you'll be hearing from us in about a month
3: and don't and those of you who have reached out uh, via twitter or other mechanisms with comments or feedback please know that they're always welcome uh, we th- we're thrilled to know that you're engaging it and thrilled to know when you have observations or suggestions or critiques indeed
2: on tap
4: is produced and engineered by charles ketchaba it's supported by the school of the arts media performance and design at york university in canada and its Department of Theater, with undergraduate and graduate programs in theater performance, production and design, and performance studies. You can find more episodes of the podcast and other information on this and other shows at ontappod.com. That's O-N-T-A-P-P-O-D.com or wherever you get your podcasts. It's great if you subscribe, and we always appreciate listener comments and reviews. You can email us at hosts at ontappod.com or find us on Facebook by searching ONTAP and on Twitter at OntapPodcast. Podcast. Thanks so much for listening.